Before I begin, I just want to say thank you so much for having Jono and I here speak tonight. It's a real privilege that you would even want to hear part of our stories. I'm going to be telling you a little bit about my journey as a teenager. Some of it may trigger certain emotions in you, or they may have affected someone that you know, or someone been through something similar. These things sometimes can be a little bit difficult to process. So um, if you need to come talk after the service, or if you want to come talk to the team or myself, I am here. When we bring these things into the light, they make them easier to understand. So I want to pray first. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. Come be in our hearts. Come be in my words. Amen. All right. So I'm Rosie. Jono over there. We've been married for coming up 10 years this year. And as Eleanor said, we have four mostly amazing kids. Benji, Sammy, Eliza, and Katie, ranging from ages 8 down to 2. I was born in New Zealand, but I have spent the last 12 years living over in Sydney. This is us here um, a couple of months ago enjoying the freezing cold rain that <laughs> is produced to us living in Tauranga. I, when I was first asked to share for the Overcomer series, I started to think about what's happened in my life and how have I overcome these things? Like, Why have any of these things been significant? I thought about what are the common themes that thread between all these ones and all these events. And I've realized that there's been one common theme that's helped me to overcome a range of things through my life. And that's been friends. Friends have been the thing that have helped me get through the good, the bad, and the ugly. So tonight, we're going to talk about friends. We're going to talk about why they're important, what friends have meant to me, and the impact on friendships, maybe when they don't go according to plan. Without a doubt, God has been so gracious in gifting me with friends from all walks of life, through every age and through every stage. I can say for certain that it has been the support of my friends that has helped me through life. It's inspired me to be a better friend to others. Sometimes these friends have been much older than me. One of my best friends, she's 81 and I absolutely adore her. Some, they're the same age. Some have been younger. Some I've had a really long history with spanning across the Tisman, but some have just been here for a really short season. Regardless of this, I know that all these people have been so carefully placed in my life by God to guide, to encourage, to correct, to walk next to me. In Proverbs 18, 24, it talks about the one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We've all had friends that fall into one of those two categories, I'm sure. Those who let us down versus those who stick by us, regardless of what's going on in our lives. This was especially important for me as a teenager, which is when I learned firsthand the lessons on friendships. So I grew up just outside of Tiamuru on a farm with my older brother and my amazing parents. All things considered, I'd say I had a pretty good, normal, average childhood. We actually used to go camping every year down at Plumber's Point, down the road. Some of you might have remembered it. Loved it. The fondest memories from our time there. My parents, they worked so hard, but they strived to give us many opportunities and to pursue the things that we loved and encouraged us to be the kind of people that we wanted to be. I didn't grow up a Christian, but for me, I didn't know any better. That didn't bother me. 
all in all, I'd say it was a rather normal life. However, there was a string of small events that did take place at the age between about 15, 14 and 16. I, my parents met this random couple while they were over here holidaying and they were running emission trips to Mexico and I was 14, 15 and they said, do you want to come along? So I got to go on a solo trip with a bunch of strangers over to Mexico. Amazing, positive experience. I had a bus accident. We had to go to court, standing in court as a 15-year-old, horrific, negative. My brother left home. Some people would say that that would be negative. I was definitely on the positive camp there. <laughs> My dad, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Definitely negative. Then, tragically, one of the girls in our year, she died in a horrific car accident. That was a really tough one for us to process. Even though that these things were impacting in different ways, none of them were unbearable. However, when they were combined together, for me, I was this happy-go-lucky 15-year-old. I was the one who doesn't have any problems. I was perfect. I had my life all sorted out. I was the smiley, happy, clappy one. But I didn't know how to process this stuff. I didn't know how to cope with it. So I did the only thing that I thought would work. I tried to commit suicide. When that happened, there was one thing I felt so certain about. I didn't have hope. I didn't know Jesus. I rationalized my decision as being the only thing that I could do. I didn't have the faith that there was something more. I also didn't realize that there were people who cared, that there were people who wanted to walk with me, people who wanted to support me, who wanted to hear about my story or just the mundaneness of life. I forgot that I had parents who loved me so much. I forgot my own self-worth. On the day I tried to take my own life, I messaged my best friend to say goodbye. Immediately, she knew that was out of character for me. This tells you two things about friends. One, they need to know you, and they need to know you well. And two, they need to act. This is what my good friend did. She grabbed another friend, and they went down to my dad's work, and they told him that they didn't think something was right. He raced home. He found me, and he took me down to the hospital. That day, I learned a really powerful lesson about the love of a parent and that they would do anything to make sure that I was okay. You might not think that about your parents, but I can say unequivocally now that I'm a parent, I would do the exact same thing. Why would I take my own life? I had a good childhood. I was privileged. I had everything that I needed at the drop of my hand. It was a cry for help. I felt something so deep inside of me that I hadn't felt before when I faced my parents as they tended to me in hospital. I felt shame. I felt heartbreak. I felt a thousand questions. The whys. When I went back to school, I took comfort in the fact that only a couple of people knew what had happened. This was a shameful thing. I was not going to make this public. There were two beautiful friends who I had who happened to be Christian. They sent me the most loving bunch of flowers. I still remember them. They were a little thing of gerberas and they were just gorgeous and colourful and bright. 
and they attached a little card to it just saying, hey, Rosie, we love you. We're here to talk if you need, but we love you. As I reflected on those flowers many years later, I realized that those flowers, they were such a gift from God because they have formed some of the early foundations for me for faith and for what it looks like in the years that followed. These flowers showed me how good friendship work, that it comes unconditional, it comes without all these extra bits that are just simple and loving. Back at school, as I was adjusting to this new altered life and seeking comfort, I turned to someone that she appeared like a safe refuge. This new friend was a Christian. She appeared kind. She asked questions about why hadn't I been at school. I shared about my attempted suicide on the proviso that she was not to tell a soul. She comforted me. She gave me a book called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. She said very Christian things. She invited me to church. She told me. She just, at times, she felt like she was that closer than a brother. Then she went and told everyone what I had done. The betrayal and the hurt that followed was so overpowering. I had to relieve the shame and the guilt again. I don't know if any of you know that sickening feeling that you get when someone knows something so precious and so secret about you, but then they go and use it as trivial gossip. Oh, do you know to this day, I still haven't read The Purpose Driven Life. I'm sure it's a great book. This experience taught me another lesson about friendship. In Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it is the wellspring of life. Choose your friends carefully. Someone very wise once told me that the person you'll be in five years' time is a combination of the books you read and the friends you keep. It took me about five years from the injury of that portrayal to consider what it might mean for me to give my life to Jesus. I had to see past the hurt. I had to see past someone who had damaged me and realize that there is someone greater and it's Jesus and that I don't need a person to heal me. Jesus could make me whole again. Since becoming a Christian, life hasn't always been easy. In fact, I've had many more challenges since that moment that have tested my faith and my character. But there's one thing I know, which is that along the way, the friendships that I've shared have assisted me to understand more about who I am, what kind of friend I want to be, and what kind of friend I want to be to others. My friends have helped me to overcome all of life's circumstances. I need quality friends. I need encouraging friends. I need supportive and honest ones. And I really want to strive to be that kind of person and to give hope to others in the way that I was given hope in that bunch of flowers. I'm so grateful that Jesus has helped me through the good times and the bad times. And he's proven on many occasions to be a friend, a true friend who is closer than a brother. So my question for you tonight, what sort of friend are you? What sort of friend do you seek? 
You may have heard the saying, to get a friend, you must first be a friend. If that's the case, what sort of friend can you be to somebody else? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that through the bronze we share with others, you help us to overcome. We thank you that you are the true friend, Lord, and that through you we can grow closer with you every day. Amen. I'm going to hand you over to my wonderful husband now. Amazing. How do, you, how do you follow a woman like that? Well, I get to follow her every day. Can everyone just stand for a second? Just stand, have a stretch. A bit full on. Thank you, sweetie, for your words. And uh, stretch it out. Have a seat. And gaze on the glory of one of my greatest achievements. On the screen you'll see something which I think was the pinnacle of my existence as a human being. That's me holding a giant egg. That's a very large egg. I was a very small child. And I appeared in the paper because our chicken laid that egg. And I I think, honestly, if I reflect on my life since that moment, it's been pretty much all downhill (laughs) since. Now, here's another photo of me when I was a little bit older. But as you can see, there's a trend. I look a little bit similar today. Haven't haven't aged today. Um, But just after this moment, interestingly, as I went into high school, a defining moment happened, which was to change my life forever. And that's what I want to talk about this evening. I'll start by thanking you for the chance to share and praying to a good God that he would speak through me. Jesus, thank you for your word that guides us. Thank you for your love that saves us. And thank you for your grace that sets us free. In your mighty name, amen. Well, my childhood was defined by eggs, as you can see. Um, But more importantly, uh, I grew up in an incredible home that was um, characterised by a few different things. And if I think about it, being the last of five children was one achievement. Um, Two older brothers, two older sisters. Um, But we had what would probably be regarded from the outside as a relatively straightforward existence. Um, We grew up in a relatively nice suburb in Sydney. We'd moved quite a bit because we rented houses as different family members grew up and moved out and so on. Um, But just as we transitioned into when I was in year seven, so 12 years old, the peace of our house was uh, interrupted by two police officers who came to our front door. Now, if you're in a white bread part of Sydney, police officers coming to the front door is not always good news. And these guys came to inform us that my dad would be charged with about 53 different offences which related to some things he'd been doing that we had absolutely no idea about. And at that moment, I realised something quite spectacular, and that was not everything is as it seems. And tonight I want to talk about three topics. I want to talk about perception, I want to talk about fatherhood, and I want to talk about grace. And my first crash course in perception happened in that moment. Devastated my mum, and for the next six years, dictated the life of our family. Until it culminated when I was 18, the day before my HSC started, which is in Australia, was like the big final exam you get in year 12, just before you go into high school. With my dad being charged with a range of offences, being shrunk down to 13, and was sentenced to 10 years in prison, with eight years on the bottom for good behaviour. And I remember when he drove into the driveway, 
after this protracted court case, which had been devastatingly expensive and cost us a lot emotionally. And he got out of the car and he looked incredibly tired. And he said, we lost. And unlike the movies where you'd expect police to be turning up at that point, handcuffing and taking away, they give you a bit of time to get your act together. And then a couple of weeks later, they cart you off to prison. And I heard in that moment the most visibly powerful word from the Lord that I've ever heard in my entire life. And he said, everything is going to be okay. Now, as a boy of 18, when your dad's been just sent to prison, it didn't really feel like everything was going to be okay. And in fact, for the next six to seven years, as I bounced between different prisons around New South Wales, visiting some places that are not very pleasant at all, going into places feeling absolutely terrified and alone. I learned another crash course in perception, which was as you walk through, through those moments, what happens to you tends to try to define you. And your perception of yourself changes. I remember standing in front of a very big barred building with lots of barbed wire at the top and looking around at other people. And I was relatively well-dressed. I was quite well-educated. came from a pretty well-to-do area of Sydney. I looked at everybody else, slightly different to me. Some of them in for some incredible different offences and supporting the different people who'd, who'd come along to prison. And, and I thought, I, I don't feel in the right place here. And in those moments, and there was many of them, I had this growing perception of myself which was incredibly distorted. I remember this one time, I was visiting my dad, towards the end of his sentence, he went to a prison farm, which is like a a lower-tiered facility which you could visit. And I drove back from that visit as quickly as I could because I had a meeting to go to. I swung through Macca's in Lithgow. I grabbed myself a large McChicken meal, the king of all meals. I put the large Coke on my passenger seat. I weaved through a part of the valley there which had some twists and turns, and the large Coke just emptied itself onto my passenger seat, which was just super frustrating. Just went through all my seat, and I, would, uh, I swung from this incredible emotion of a time where I felt devastated and alone to mopping up Coke underneath my car seat, and I couldn't believe it, and I thought that golden rule, never drive angry. So I pulled over into a little um, side area, and I took a little bit of a nap on some grass, some grass that was there, and I woke up. All of a sudden, because where I was um, lying on the ground was part of this park, and they were closing it, I jumped in my car, I sped as quickly as I could, obeying the speed limit as a good Christian, and went to a meeting that I had to go to at church. I sat in the meeting at church with fellow youth leaders, and someone said something to me which I could not believe. They said, why are you always late to these meetings? And I balled my fists under the table. And I thought, why am I late to these meetings? Because I've just spent the last five hours feeling absolutely terrified, driving by myself to a place which is inhumane, spending time with a man who I swung between absolutely, unbelievably hating, and then fondly remembering things he'd done as a father. And that's when I got another lesson in perception. And that was people will see only what they can see. And they'll judge you accordingly. As I went through that time, something came out of all of that, which was very defining. It's been part of my life ever since. 
and that is a high level of anxiety. For six years across the time my family was going through that experience and then the other six years post my dad being in prison, I tried to adapt to the world around me. And that meant hiding from people and hiding things that I was going through. I became very, very good at that. People wouldn't know. But if I was in a conversation and someone would say something about families or fathers or what did you get up to on the weekend, I had this incredible sinking feeling inside my chest. I developed what I'd find out only a couple of years later. It's called agoraphobia, agoraphobia. It's, a, it's, it's got three different things going on all at once, which is quite devastating. It's um, a biological response, physiological response, psychological response, and you start feeling trapped in a situation. Then you feel like you're about to throw up. And then you think everyone's going to laugh at you because you're th- about to throw up. And all those things combine to produce this incredibly crippling anxiety. I couldn't travel on trains. I couldn't get my hair cut. I found it difficult to walk into shopping centres. Liberated by the love of a woman who stood beside me and walked through those moments with me and changed my perception of myself. That anxiety, the perception that I had, leaked into fatherhood. And I'm not sure what your considerations are about God the Father, but mine weren't that great. If you have a broken father, your heavenly father can sometimes have the same characteristics. I sat in a counsellor's office once and she said, just describe to me your relationship with God. And I did that. She wasn't a believer herself. As I described what I thought God was, she, she stopped me and said, I'm sorry, that doesn't sound like God to me. That sounds like your dad. And I realised that the accusations, the highest standard I was always perpetually called to, the things that sat in my heart, those secret and deep moments that would never be realised because I didn't have the validation from my father, were not characteristics of God. And trust me, even to this day, and I imagine to the end of my life, I have to redefine who God is. Now that I've become a father, it's been a journey. It's been an incredible journey to try and redefine fatherhood around something that I didn't know. Just a couple of weeks ago, one of our sons, Benji, who's an incredible, incredibly kind young boy, um, said some things he really regretted, and he felt this intense shame. And I thought, ah, this is my jam. I know shame. I know that feeling you've got burning inside your chest. He's only seven. He can't articulate those thoughts. And I held him really close. And he still went off the, the rails. He, he couldn't understand this sense that he had about what he was feeling. And so I told him a story. I said, if, if I had acted the way that you acted to my dad, he would have walked me into the backyard. He would have taken a stick from a tree. He would have hit me across the back of the legs. Sometimes it would bleed. Most of the time it would bruise. And he'd teach me a lesson the hard way. And Benji yelled in my face. He said, you wouldn't do that because you're not strict enough. And I said five liberating words to him that made me cry in a way that he would never understand. And I said, no, Benji, it's not about being strict. I am not my dad. So I just want to finish by mentioning something about grace. My wife has put in my Bible... One little verse, and it says this. You are the God who sees me. 
You're the God who sees me. Now, when I first read that, I was terrified. Because when you go through something that's intensely shameful, even if it's not your own shame, you don't want God to see that. If you develop that sort of anxiety that's crippling, you don't want people to have to deal with it themselves, and you definitely don't want God to know it's something that you'd like to hide. But now I know, and I only know this through the lens of grace, is that is a liberating thing for God to see you. Because how he sees you is not the same way that you see yourself. And that is intensely important. Because if you use as a yardstick God's grace through the lens of your own brokenness, you would never understand who God is and what he's done. And so I can unequivocally say, and I want to encourage you with this, that when God extends his grace to you in a way which you don't deserve, not because you've overcome something, not because you've behaved in a certain way, not because you've acted in purity, not because you've done or said the right things, but simply because he is a good God and Father. The thing you can do in response is to kneel, is to pray, is to thank him for what he's done. In just a moment, the band's going to come up and they're going to play. And we're going to, I'm going to be down the front here. Rosa will be down the front here as well. A couple of the other team will as well. And we'd like to minister to you. I know in this room, looking around, and statistically it would be a third, if not higher, there's people who are carrying anxiety about themselves. They're carrying a broken perception of who they are. They might have gone through similar things that we've described. And I want to give you this challenge. We'll be down the front here. You can come at the front. And if your first thought is, I'm not going to do that, as soon as I go up the front, people are going to be like, that guy's broken. We're all broken. We're all broken. So I just want to give you the invitation, if you feel led, to come up the front. Be prayed for. And I hope more than anything that you'll be liberated from those things that you've been trapped in for so long. So Jesus, we thank you for your guidance to us and your unmerited grace. We thank you that you perceive our thoughts from afar and that you perceive who we are regardless of who we appear to be. Lord Jesus, be in this holy moment where your children come to you with their brokenness and are set free. We pray that together in Jesus' name.